Good evening, everyone. Librarian Danielle Benashi here from the Code St. Luke Public Library joining you virtually. Tonight, we have another great program for you. The library is thrilled to have the opportunity to host a conversation with the best-selling author, Daniel Kalla. Thank you very much, Daniel, for taking the time to speak with me today from Vancouver and to Jillian at Simon & Schuster for making this event possible. Thanks also to Andreas at Paragraph Bookstore for collaborating with us on this event. To begin, I'll share a condensed bio. Daniel Kalla is an internationally best-selling author of novels, including Lost Immunity, The Last High, and We All Fall Down. His latest and 13th novel, The Darkness in the Light, was published this month. Kalla practices emergency medicine in Vancouver, British Columbia. Visit him at danielkalla.com or follow him on Twitter at Daniel Kalla. Welcome back, Daniel, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back again. <laughs> uh, the last time we spoke was when your 11th novel, The Last High, had just come out in spring of 2020. Since then, you've written Lost Immunity as well as The Darkness and the Light. How do you find the time to write so much <laughs> as well as practice medicine? Yeah, well, in many ways, writing, you know, particularly through COVID, which has been such a relatively stressful uh, time for everybody, but, you know, especially for the, you know, for those of us in the emergency department, at least the first year in particular, um, I really needed that release and writing is my favorite hobby. And um, yeah, I think it actually has, it actually helped me deal with a lot of the emotions and highs and lows that we were experiencing. In the last high, you used your own experiences on the front lines of the opioid crisis to shed a light on the wide scope of people who can succumb to addiction, as well as the social structures that lock people into cycles of addiction. Were you able to use any of your own personal experience in writing this novel as well? For example, did you have virtual patient consultations during the pandemic that you could draw from? Yeah, I mean, as you say, this sort of, I always try to touch thematically on sort of hot button medical issues. I mean, I, I don't want my books to just be about that. Like, I view the darkness as in the light more of a psychological th thriller, like a Nordic noir style. But, but in terms of the two big themes that I wanted to tackle from a medical point of view, one was, you know, the mental health. gotten worse in the face of the pandemic and the other was virtual medicine and the pros and cons and I have had first-hand experience with both but you know surprisingly even in the eMERGE department we were doing some virtual follow-up you know with our patients we were patients who we were sending for outpatients you know things like CAT scans and ultrasounds and certain tests and so we would do virtual follow-up with them so you know it's got all the convenience in the world it's like you and I talking from Montreal to Vancouver and as I point out in this book, particularly psychiatrists, they need to see their patients. Body language is often as important as the words people are saying, but it is limiting. You know, it's not the same as you and I sitting down over coffee and talking about things. There's there's a distance that comes with virtual medicine. There's a, a remoteness, you know, and uh, I really tried to capture that theme in the story. Yes, you did that very well. A big thank you to Jillian at Simon & Schuster for sending me an advanced reader's copy of the book that is up here behind me. I'll share a synopsis of the plot for those listening in tonight. 
After Brianna O'Brien takes her own life, Dr. David Spears blames himself. Though he understands suicides can be a tragic occurrence in the psychiatric practice, this loss hits him particularly hard. With Brianna, he's convinced he missed crucial warning signs. When David suspects Brianna's friend, Amka Obed, whom he also has been treating virtually, is in crisis, he flies to the remote Arctic community of Utkiaktik, Alaska, only to discover that she has disappeared. While the regional police are confident that Amka will turn up safe, David and the town's social worker, Taylor Holmes, have serious doubts. Each battling their own demons, David and Taylor launch an investigation determined to help uncover the truth about what happened to Amka. David wonders if a new antidepressant he recently prescribed both Amka and Brianna played a role in what took place. Taylor, who's familiar with the locals, suspects a drug lord with connection to Amka's boyfriend. Who is right? Where is Amka? Is she still alive? Congratulations on a very timely, twisty, and engrossing thriller novel that is both captivating and thought-provoking. Thank you. Daniel, I've heard you describe this novel as a Scandinavian noir-style thriller. It's set in Utkiaktik, Alaska, located on Alaska's North Slope. It's the northernmost city in the United States and the ninth northernmost city in the world. Readers like me will want to know if you visited the rugged locales described in the novel in order to best accurately describe the climate and the terrain. Yeah, no, un unfortunately I couldn't because I was writing it during the peak of lockdown and we weren't even allowed to travel. <clears throat> To Alaska at the time um, and so yeah it was actually my daughter who found, I was looking for you know that very desolate um, you know exotic in the sense of different um, city and my daughter I was thinking originally of setting it in the northwest territories of the Yukon somewhere but um, my daughter suggested this town of Utkuyavik which used to be Barrow Alaska and it's such an incredible town and I watched hundreds of hours of online videos and read everything I could about the town so that I feel like I have a sense of it now. I can certainly picture it, the streets and the and the layout and the maps and, and stuff. It's obviously never quite the same as visiting it. But um, so far, um, I, I, I think the feedback I've got, although I don't know how many of the readers, if any, have been there, <laughs> it almost doesn't matter, right? It, uh, it, but people have said that the setting, you know, becomes another character in the story. Yes. And, it, and it very much, and it's the perfect town because it truly is a fly in. You can only get there by air. You, there are no roads there. There's, you can, you know, ships can get in for a very brief time in the summer, but eventually, effectively, um, it's air only. And as you know, this is um, kind of a locked door mystery. Um, and so the whole town becomes that sort of locked door setting. And, uh, and it really, I, I think, adds to the atmosphere of the story. Yes, definitely. Isolation is a major theme in this novel, uh, whether it be the remoteness of the locale that's not connected by road to the rest of Alaska, for example, as, as you stated, or the feeling of a disconnect from both the patients and the psychiatrist when communicating virtually for the treatment of mental health issues, including attempted suicide and repression. Was this deliberate? Yeah, no, very much. Um, yeah, it's a really good point, Danielle. <clears throat> it was essential, you know, and, and it's, it's about, this, this story is hugely about disconnect. Um, 
partly through through physical separation and, and isolation that way, but also very much emotional isolation. And, you know, many of the characters, the you know, both the protagonists and, you know, the victims and, you know, are, are meant to represent people who are very isolated for different ways. Even the hero, you know, the, as you know, there's two <clears throat> lead point of views, storytellers, and both of them um, are isolated for different reasons. Um, the hero is the the first hero you meet is a psychiatrist who works in Anchorage, but he's separated from his wife, who he still has strong feelings for. And his daughter, his wife moved his daughter down to Seattle, and he's sort of longing for both of them. And he has his own history of depression and and mental health and issues. And you know, and so uh, even in Anchorage, he feels isolated and alone and so and and that's a recurring theme with to some degree or other with all the characters in the story indigenous culture is central to this particular book as well how did you go about researching both the inuit culture and the north alaskan inupiaq dialect which is referred to in a few of the passages in the novel yeah <laughs> i went i went about it carefully because i know it's such a potential landmine for a uh, white settler to be uh, writing about indigenous people knowing nothing of their actual experience that they've lived through and and all of that. I completely understand what a um, fragile and uh, tenuous um, situation that can be. So, um, but it was unavoidable for many reasons. The town itself in reality is 60% indigenous. Um, and, you know, and, and has, and the Inuit culture is, is beautiful and fascinating. And, you know, while it's related to other indigenous tribes across North America, it's very distinct. And then even within the Inuit, as I discovered by research, there's so many different tribes and, and culture, you know, cultures and folklore and history and dialects. And so, uh, and as you said, the Inupiat are the ones who tend to predominate in Northern Alaska. And so, um, it was fascinating reading about them and just to share, you know, there's one character, one of the, you know, main secondary characters is a, is a, you know, you know, quite a wonderful police chief of the town. And he's my only main indigenous uh, character, but he, through him, I'm able to share some of the culture, some of the history that, that, that the Inupiat had been in, in the air, in the region and settled the region for almost 1500 years, which is staggering, you know, when you think about how, how far their roots go back. So, and also, yeah, and just to explore, I, I learned a lot in the research and it was fascinating, you know, some of the religious um, traditions and stuff and sort of, you know, with the, like all indigenous cultures, how important um, <clears throat> the, uh, you know, the uh, environment, the phys their physical environment is to their, <clears throat> to, to the folklore there and so, yeah, I tried to capitalize on that, but not um, not bastardize it and 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 not uh, and not reduce it to cliche in any way. Yes, very well done. A psychiatrist's insights would also be needed to write certain sections of this book as well. How did you go about making sure these instances rung true? Yeah, I had a friend who's a. Um, who I work with in the emergency who read one of the early drafts and, and gave me feedback, which was wonderful. But I've been working in a hospital in my in the emergency department. I work with, you know, mental health and substance use issues or, or among the primary 
complaints that we see. I deal with so much uh, mental health disorders. I don't pretend for one minute to be a psychiatrist, but I do think I understand, you know, very well professionally what depression, what 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 substance use, what suicidality um, can and often will present like uh, in crisis. Um, I see far too much of it. I've seen far too many tragic stories that way. So I feel like, uh, you know, I had a pretty good working base and then I could run it by my expert to make sure I wasn't, uh, I wasn't getting it wrong. And how long did you spend writing this particular novel? It's, it's, I never know how to count that, Danielle, because, you know, there's the first draft and then there's all the revisions that you work with the editors and stuff. So in terms of the pure first draft, including mental illness and suicide, alcoholism and drug abuse, drug trafficking, sexual assault, failed social injustice system for the Indigenous. How important was it for you to weave all of these elements into one thriller? I don't know that I, I really thought that I had to capture everything at all. Like a lot of that just happened organically in the writing. You know, as I said, the two major theme I wanted to touch on was the you know the the issues of virtual health and the issue of just remoteness and what the pandemic has done to you know like like we've sort of talked about already but just how vital connection human connection is and 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 how um how disconcerting it can be when you lose that connection so but the rest of the themes kind of flowed sort of were based on the you know the plot and the characters so I didn't set out to capture a million themes in, in writing. So let's speak about some of the characters within the novel for a few moments. Your protagonist, Dr. Spears, is, is a psychiatrist who himself struggles with mental illness. Do you think this makes him a better doctor as he can empathize with his patients and what they're going through? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And I, I, I believe that you wouldn't believe how common it is in medicine for specialists to have been patients in their own specialty you know it and it really it makes such a difference just in general for a doctor to have been a patient to felt that vulnerability and helplessness that patients feel um, always makes you a better doctor like I have no doubt of that but but yeah that was a very conscious decision to a give him you know to, to give him some innate empathy for the the <clears throat> the patients he deals with but also um, to establish the point that anybody is vulnerable to depression, anybody is vulnerable to suicidality. It's not, it's not based on one socioeconomic um, <clears throat> demographic or another. And so uh, I really like that idea of establishing him as, as both a treater, you know, someone who treats mental health, but also someone who has suffered firsthand directly from mental health issues. And Taylor is a complex character who cares a lot about the remote Alaskan community she's serving, but is also weary of getting too close to anyone who shows interest in her, and several people do. <laughs> How did you come up with this character and the secret she harbors? Yeah, again, uh, it just sort of, it just happened. I, I like the idea of someone, because a lot of people... You know, apart from the indigenous culture up there, a lot there's a big itinerant community. It's a big oil and gas community. And anywhere in those, you know, those more remote 
um, areas, there's, there's always a, a certain population of people who are running away from things, you know, and I really like the idea of her running away. As you said, she carries a big health secret that, that has sort of sent her fleeing from California to Alaska. Uh, and again, I think, you know, I think that made her, made her uh, appreciate uh, the community up there more. And um, it really, yeah, I wanted, you know, as you know, without giving too much away for those who didn't read, who haven't read the book, hopefully will. Um, I like the idea that she physically was fleeing from, from, a, from a situation and, and got as far as away as she possibly could. David's psychiatrist and friend, Dr. Javier Gutierrez, is another interesting character whose beliefs around the antidepressant uh, ketopram come into question. It was easy to picture someone like him, for me anyway, with a financial interest in the success of a pharmaceutical company and its star product. Is this something you've come across? And do we have these same ethical dilemmas in Canada as we tend to assume are prevalent in the United <laughs> States? <laughs> yeah, no, ex exactly. David become, comes to suspect rightly or wrongly that, that his good friend and confidant and mentor in many ways is kind of in the back pocket of the drug company whether as you know whether that's true or not you have to read to the end to find out but um yes and no like it's really well regulated particularly in canada and in the u.s even compared to when i started my career i mean it used to be drug companies would take doctors on trips and give gifts and do and all of that stuff is you know the medical colleges and other government agencies and even the drug companies to a certain degree now regulate so there's less of that direct tit for tat but so many researchers are dependent on drug companies to support them so many um people you know so big pharma still does play a role and influences i think it's a bit more subtle um than potential outright fraud and corruption but there are lots of cases that you know it's proven that 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 something like that could happen so it's not that big a stretch from the truth but my personal experience is i haven't seen i haven't seen too many doctors overtly influenced that strongly by big pharma and how did you come up with the name <laughs> <laughs> i just want to you know i sorry i give it's a new to, to give people perspective it's a it's meant to be this new class of a new type of antidepressant that works sometimes when the others don't, but has a potential side effect. And I just started looking at other names of antidepressants. I just sort of feel it just sort of sounded right. I just literally made it up on the spot one afternoon and it just kind of fit. The young women, Brianna and Amka, uh, both suffer from depression and are friends living in the same remote Alaskan terrain. How much do you think the actual locale, terrain, uh, social environment, darkness <laughs> contrib contributes to their struggles? A lot. I mean, all those things are, are factors. And as you know, there's the specter of <clears throat> sexual abuse uh, that sort of hangs in the air as well um, over them. And I think, you know, I mean, it, depression is so common, as I said, across the board. But in situations where, you know, in those kind of demographics where, um, you know, where there's some poverty, there's some substance issue, um, it puts such a high risk uh, of, <clears throat> of, uh, 
of depression and other mental health issues. So I think it's it's very common. And and as I point out in the book, the suicidality in Alaska is about two or three times that the rest of continental North America. And then in that northern region where Utkovec is, it's another two or three times the rest of Alaska. So you're talking about they have a, a rate of suicide at sort of six times what the rest of the averages in North America. So it's a, it's an epidemic. It's a crisis up there. Yeah, I was wondering if that had to do with the, the very small amount of daylight they have throughout the year. Yeah. I don't, you know, I, I, I certainly think there is probably something to that. I don't know. You know, I don't know. I mean, they, they have the opposite where this book is set. And that's why the name of it is the darkness under the light. It's set in the polar summer where it never really gets dark and that in itself will make you a little bit nuts too right <laughs> never see this so our audience will want to know with the popularity of all things scandi noir these days are there any plans in the works for a possible adaptation of this novel to either the small <laughs> or the big screen not that i've heard yet no um i'm always hoping but yeah, I mean, I've been now, as you said, it's my 13th novel. I've yet to see one materialize as a, in the smaller big screen, but I've been down the road several times and um, some very enthusiastic producers. And there's a, you know, there's, a, there's often a lot of talk, but <laughs> not always the uh, resources or ability to pull it off. So I'm always a bit skeptical that that will ever happen, but one can hope. You never know. A lot of Canadian film crews usually in your your neck of the woods. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, and could you share a sneak peek of your next project with the audience? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I heard through a kind of tragic story through an emergency department in Vancouver about this substance called DNP. Uh, a year or so ago, and it's called dinitrophenol. And just to give uh, people a bit of a background, DNP is a, is a real chemical, and it was invented around the turn of the century, the 20th century, and it was uh, explosive, actually, and it was one of the key components of howitzer shells in World War I. And they noticed in the munition factories in France where they were building this, uh, these howitzer shells that people were getting sick um, they were feeling hot all the time, sweating all the time. And the people who inhaled this chemical, and a lot of them started to lose weight. Some of them died and some of them broke in these really high fevers. And they realized that the chemical was to blame. Um, and not much was done about it, except about 15 years later, a chemist from Harvard decided that it would make a good diet pill. And he created these uh, diet pills. They marketed to the, you know, the readers of women's magazines at the time. And the, it became very popular with, with housewives of that generation and was a very effective weight loss pill, but unfortunately it started to kill a lot of the users. So the FDA and other regulatory ban bodies banned it in the 1930s. And it stayed as a chemical, like a, it was always an industrial chemical and dyes and explosives and paints, but no one used it again for that purpose until the mid nineties when, uh, uh, the weight law when the bodybuilding world discovered that it was a very pro-metabolic agent for muscle building and it started to appear on the dark web and the gray web and be sold online for very sketchy sources and then it spread to the 
eating disorder community because it's a very effective weight loss program. And people have started to die. And I, this all, I, I had never heard of this drug until we had a, sadly a case of a relatively young woman coming in who said that she had taken four of those pills. And um, when some of my colleagues called poison control, they said, you can do X, Y, and Z, but there's a good chance she was gonna die. And she did die 12 hours later. And I couldn't believe how toxic um, this drug was and the fact that it was sold online and widely available. And so I built a thriller with the heroes from The Last High, two of them, and also another detective in Los Angeles about an outbreak of somebody marketing through very devious social media ways, um, especially to teenagers. And then there's an outbreak of some deaths related to DNP and the race to find out who's behind it and how to stop it. And the same time, there's these two wellness centers in the town um, that um, are doing very well and have very positive results for their clients. And there's also a connection. And so it's kind of a race to figure out how everything's connected and who's behind it. And, uh, and again, it'll give me a chance to, to enlighten um, hopefully the readers about this terrible, um, terrible drug that's out there and available. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so in the same way, in a much smaller, I wrote The Last High in many ways as a cautionary tale because I had teenage daughters at the time and I wanted them to be so aware of the dangers of opioids. And, and uh, this is another way to raise some awareness about another thing that I think is quite awful um, that very few people uh, have heard much about. Sounds very interesting. Well, in this novel, really, we are speaking a lot about mental illness and it's very timely with the pandemic and we hear more and more about um, more cases of mental illness around us uh, because of the isolation. Um, so I'm sure that our readers are interested in reading both because your book just came out. So I know we have a wait list already. Mm. Uh, I see we already have some questions from the audience. So let me just uh, turn to that. Sure. Um, do you consider this book a thriller? It doesn't sound like one. What hmm. makes a book a thriller? And the person Sorry. says, I'm referring to the darkness and the light. No, no, thank you. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. In fact, I wrote a whole um, a blog a couple of weeks ago for Crime Reads. Um, and, you know, my whole point was to throw out these terms to just call it all suspense ready because, you know, thrillers, mysteries, police procedurals, it's so hard to define what is what anymore. Um, and it doesn't matter. You know, I actually consider this sort of a psychological thriller and, and very much a, a, a mystery. Um, so, yeah, I agree. I think and I, and I think it's unfair to, to, to try to pigeonhole. You go out of your mind trying to pigeonhole what is, uh, you know, and, and people say I write medical thrillers, which is true that I write medical suspense, but I don't view them as such. Yeah. And so to me, it's all suspense and crime writing. And um, yeah, and that's what I would call it. But I agree. I, I don't like all the subgenres. It just, it's just confusing. And not only that, it turns people off. They go, oh, I won't read a, I won't read a domestic thriller. I won't read a you know, cozy or whatever you want to call it, but it, you know, you should read it based on the quality of the writing and your interest in the characters and the story. And yeah, I don't think it helps to, to pigeonhole them. Uh, definitely. I think that um, your books definitely, you, you use the headlines and what's happening in the world right now 
incredible inspiration to to write your medi medically themed <laughs> novels, which yeah. I think people will appreciate definitely. Um, yeah, but I mean, and you know, Daniel, you read this, and I, I don't, you didn't say if you were fooled by the couple of the big twists that, you know, there's one twist that sort of inspired me to write this novel in, in, in the form of storytelling in a way done in the first person I've never seen done in a novel before. And I was determined to try to do that. And I, I hope I pull it off. And, you know, I got a, for me, I was a hugely honored when Margaret Cannon of the Globe and Mail gave it a really good review and she said she actually was hornswoggled by the twist <laughs> but a twist is meaningless if you don't if you're not interested in the story if you're not um if the dialogue you know <clears throat> isn't crackling if you're not you know if, who cares what the twist is who cares what the great the brilliant plot device is if you're not invested in you know in <clears throat> in the characters that are driving the story so i think it's you know uh, for me from point of pride you know, characterization and uh, dialogue come first and foremost in any story I write. Definitely, I will say that I did not expect the twist. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised about the twist. I was sort of a little bit ah, in shock uh, of the reveal, but I can't say what the reveal is and I will not say what the reveal is. Uh, but definitely, I think, again, it has to do with we are talking about isolation and not having the proper connection through virtual um, consultation but also some of these ideas these assumptions we make about people and their characters in the novel kind of skew us in other directions than the ultimate direction that's all i will say <laughs> good well thank you that's what i was hoping for <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, what advice would you give to prospective writers listening in this evening? Yeah, I mean, I always give the same right, you know, whether I'm speaking at a conference or just going to a school to, to talk to kids. I mean, you just have to write. You have to read. You have to go to particularly the same quote library and you have to go. But you have to you just have to read a lot to know what you want to write. And then you have to write. I, you know, I always say it's sort of cliche, but. You know, there's no Tiger Woods or or um, or great concert pianist or whatever you want to choose without you know years of work and practice, right? No matter how much innate talent you have as a writer, until you start expressing it and finding your voice and perfecting your style, um, you'll never be a, a great writer, even a good writer. So, and, and don't be discouraged. I mean, there's writing is constantly discouraging. You know, for someone at my level, I'm not you know, a household name, always struggling. It's always, you know, the books could always do better and, and, and everything, but it's, it's the passion for the writing. I, I know I no longer enjoy the publishing part of my book. It's the creating of the stories and, and, and uh, refining and honing them that I really love. Um, but any writer out there just has to write, you know, and I, and I don't buy, I'm sorry, but I don't buy the excuse I don't have time. I mean, we're all busy. We all make choices about things we want to pursue, TV we want to watch, sports we want to do. If you're serious about writing, you just have to dedicate some time to it. And I think, um, I, otherwise, from you know, from what little I know about writing, there is no great mystery to it. It takes hard work and yes. passion for it. And uh, and if you have that, you can be a good writer. 
And do you have a specific writing routine? Do you always write in the morning or the afternoon or whenever you can? Yeah, whenever I, whenever I, you know, I've, I've learned two things in my life and I keep making these mistakes. Don't write when you're tired. And I still try that. And it's, it's always a dead eye. And don't try to write when you have nothing that you want to say, you know, just because you have a day off or a week off. It doesn't mean... <laughs> You know, until until you're ready, until you you know you you've got your thoughts together and you know where you want to be. Forcing it for me has always been a disaster. But aside from that, I can write anywhere, anytime. If I'm in the middle of uh, you know uh, something that that has momentum, and and for me, it's all about just finding the momentum uh, to keep the story going. I find I write second halves of novels very quickly because. Um, by then I have the confidence I kind of know I feel like I know the voices maybe too quickly I guess at times but yeah it's getting that started it's getting the wind at your back for me as a writer that um, is everything and then I love that feeling of, of not almost not being able to keep up right fast enough to tell the story you want to tell and when sort of uh, thinking out this story did you already know the twist turns and you already know the ending of the novel right from the get-go and then or that you started writing the characters and they kind of just drew you yeah. there yeah no that's a good question that's a really good question I, I I mean I started with that one central twist the one one that sort of happens near the middle of the story yeah. um and and that as I said was the impetus for building the rest of the story but no I didn't know how I was going to end I had a Early on, I had an idea of who the ultimate, you know, villain would be, and um, but how I would get there, how it would be resolved, I, you know, I never know that. I never know how a novel is going to conclude, and I never worry about that because I always feel there's enough stuff that you just inadvertently, enough content that you put in a long way that it just. It, uh, I remember, I, um, I remember one author. I can't remember who it was, but describing. Um, um, uh, I'm not putting together a novel like going on a trip where you just throw everything in a suitcase and when you get to the other side you find you have all the stuff you need in the suitcase you just have to organize it a bit so and that's sort of how I feel but but this one I had more idea for sure about the big twists and 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 you know and who the villain was than I than I often do starting a novel. So we have a couple of questions from the audience uh, from William would group therapy online run by professional personnel work in the North? That's a good question. I'm really not an expert to answer, William. That's a, I, I wonder. Um, I don't know how much group therapy is, is being done online. I know myself because I go to a lot of meetings that the people are very different in a Zoom meeting than they are in real life. And um, I find people are quieter and less contributory um in these zoom meetings than they would the same personalities are in in real life so i'm not sure i that's an excellent question i don't know the answer but the advantage is we get to see people's cats and dogs and uh, yeah. we we hear that you have a beloved dog can you tell us about we him? do yeah <laughs> thank you milo i'll see if milo come huh? i'll see if i can get him to visit he's my uh i think he's coming Yes, yes. Beautiful dog. He's, he's, he's very camera shy. He's so funny. <laughs> yeah, he's my He's a rescue dog. He's a Catahoula cross and uh, he's kind of needy. I mean, all dogs to a degree, I guess, are needy, but him in particular, he, uh, 
he generally follows me, as I said, except when I'm on uh, camera, he follows me around the house and he's, he's great. And I take advantage. My Instagram is like 80% dedicated to, um, he's very photogenic. People stop me all the time. He's kind of a, he's, I'm not sure if he's purebred or not. Cause as I said, I got him as a rescue, but the Catahoula breed is very distinctive looking. They have the leopard spots and uh, people stop me all the time and ask me about him. And he just loves people. So he goes up to everybody. In fact, as a side note, I have to tell you, when I first got him, he I, he can jump seven feet straight up and I have high fences, but he used to escape. As soon as I would leave the house, he would leave the house. And he spent days like that. He spent an afternoon in an elementary school. He became the mascot. He spent an afternoon in a liquor store. Like every day I would get a tag, I'd get a phone call. Anytime I didn't recognize the number, it was because Milo had wandered off. To, <laughs> and, and so it's a little bit better now, but yeah. So you did get a, he's so cute uh, from the audience listening. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's, he's, he's and a question from Lynn. Do you write on a computer or longhand? Yeah, always. I, I can't even read my own writing. So it's always on a computer. I, uh, I haven't written anything longhand. So, but it can be any computer, you know. I, when my internet crashed, I switched to my little iPad. I can write on that. I can write on, I don't have a, a workspace or any one computer that I need to write on. And when you were writing uh, Dr. Spears, uh, did you see yourself at all in Dr. Spears? Yeah, not really. I mean, you know, I guess um, I have a daughter, I have two daughters who are a bit older than than his daughter in the novel um and um yeah and, you know my ex-wife and i separated about seven years ago so i kind of knew what it was like to be a divorced um what it might feel like to be a divorced dad i um i get to see my kids and all the time and spend time with them so and i i think i'm more um i've been so blessed in that it's not in my genetics there's nobody in my family that i know of that suffers a major depression and uh I haven't had to struggle with that, uh, like like he does so much in the novel. So, um, but but no. So I don't see a ton of parallels between me and him, except that the character I created, I have a lot of respect for in my mind. I thought he was a very decent, um, very dedicated doctor and psychiatrist. Yes. Another question just came in. For someone who has not read your books yet, what do you suggest as a starter? Hmm. That's a tough question to ask an author. <laughs> We're always tend to be. I really do like this book. I mean, I just because I, I like the way the mystery starts. So I mean, I'm always I'm often asked what my favorite of my books is. Um, I, I struggle. I, a couple ones that stand out. I wrote a historical trilogy about Shanghai in World War II and the the twenty thousand German Jews who escaped there. And the first one's called The Far Side of the Sky, and I'm really proud of that. That's probably the biggest writing challenge I've ever taken on. And so I do really still uh, like that book if you're interested in historical novels. I think The Last High, because it was set in Vancouver and um, dealt with the opioid crisis, um, I really loved the way that turned out. And, and this one, The Darkness and the Light, I think is the best mystery I've ever written. So yeah, those would be three that I'd think of. It's a very intense read um, and I would recommend it because you can read it pretty quickly. Um, you don't need to read another book before it. 
and you just you really want to find out what's going to happen to this character and what's going to happen to this character how is it going to come together at the end yeah thank you yeah I don't uh, tend to, you know apart from the, the the trilogy of the darkness and the light and as i said the new manuscript that hopefully will come out next year um has a couple characters from the last high but it's not really a sequel but i don't tend to write series or sequels um i find it easier just to start from almost scratch every time and lynn also says i introduced my book club to the last high and plan to share this book as well well thank you lynn thank did you. they like the last high lynn Uh, I'm not sure if she heard us, <laughs> but let's hope so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, Dr. Kala, um, I think those are all of our questions. She said yes. Lynn said oh. yes. <laughs> yes. Thanks, Lynn. Uh, thank you so much uh, for your time this evening. I really enjoyed your book, and I think uh, our audience will at the library as well. I know that a number of people have already put their name down for it. Um, and I hear in Vancouver, there's a long uh, wait list at the Vancouver Public Library as well. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thanks for all you do, Danielle. And this is great connecting readers with uh, especially Canadian writers. And so, yeah, it's great to be here. And thank you guys for your support. And, Thank um, you very yeah. much. And the, and the, book, trailer, the book trailer is also great. I, I wish I had uh, played a clip of it because it's it's very intriguing and it will make you want to read the book even more. So congratulations <laughs> to to Jillian and the team uh, who put it together. Yeah, it was Mackenzie and marketing. So yeah, it's great. And if you do add, if people do read it, please, it's great for us authors to see reviews on Goodreads and other places that uh, let uh, people know what they're thinking of. I often learn about my own books that way. So. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Daniel yeah. Kala. Have a nice evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye.